Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A pigeon on a quest to save hundreds of lives. They knew it was a difference of life and death. A gang of prisoners who take matters into their own hands. The first night was a ride, the second night was a war. And an automobile that's designed to fly. During any first flight of an aircraft, there's always an element of danger. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Stealth fighters, commercial jets, and experimental aircraft... These are just a few of the winged wonders that tell the tale of aviation throughout the ages, here at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. But amidst this treasure trove of all things airborne, one peculiar relic doesn't seem to fit. A lot of folks are looking at the airplanes and they notice that there's a car sitting over there and it seems unusual. Aviation historian Jake Schultz knows this automobile once had lofty ambitions. There's wings attached to that car. This vehicle was made not just to burn rubber, but to fly. So, did this quirky contraption ever take flight? It's the late 1940s. GIs are returning home to a country on the verge of an economic boom. A growing middle class is emerging, and along with it, a new layout for the nation. There were cities and populations that were growing all over America. Yet the freeway system had not yet been instituted, and so it was difficult to make long-distance travel. Now more than ever, people wish they could rise above the roads in their own plane. One such dreamer is former World War II pilot and inventor, Molt Taylor. 
His ambition is a seemingly unfathomable feat, to create a flying car. Moltz's futuristic idea, a car that converts to a plane, is actually a notion that goes back decades. There have been a number of flying cars that have been developed over the years, to various degrees of success. No such contraption has ever reached the consumer public. But Molt knows he can make the leap. So in early 1948, Molt begins construction on his high-tech vision. Molt always felt very strongly that it had to have a broad appeal in order for it to be a successful product. After more than a year of trial and error, Molt announces that his masterpiece is complete. He calls it the Aero Car. Molt's creation has the body of a flashy sports car, but the items necessary for liftoff, the wings, the tail, and propeller, could be towed from the back, like a trailer. So the switch from auto to aircraft could happen anywhere and fast. Molt would say, a woman in high heels and a fur coat could convert it in 10 minutes. But for Molt's aero car to be a success, he needs to prove it can fly. During the initial test flights, there were definitely some troubles. So by the time they got to the actual first flight, it was really crucial. On December 8, 1949, Molt prepares for the Aerocar's public maiden voyage. At stake is years of work and the life of its pilot. During any first flight of an aircraft, there's always an element of danger. Molt hooks up the tail and wings then winds the propeller. The aero car takes off down the runway. Then an unbelievable sight. Molt's creation lifts off the ground. And it took off and flew right past all the cameramen. One of the people there was so excited, he literally tripped over his tripod. After the successful flight display, Molt takes his innovative hybrid on the road showing it off to a transfixed nation. Holt used to say when he was driving down the street, people would wave and he would honk the horn, and it was just wildly popular. People really wanted a flying car. So with such a demand, why aren't we all soaring above the gridlock today? During that era, aircraft needed to be certified in order for them to be sold to the general public. In order to meet safety requirements, Molt makes continual adjustments to his invention for the next seven years. They demanded test after test after test of the aero car, which was very frustrating. Finally, in December of 1956, Molt's hard work pays off, and the aero car is granted its flight certification. A triumphant Molt begins negotiating a deal with Ford Motors. A company that size could put an aero car in every garage and change the face of transportation forever. But just as plans are being laid, Molt hits an unforeseen hurdle. In fighting so hard for flight certification, Taylor has unwittingly neglected the other side of his vehicle. When the aero car was initially designed, the most difficult regulations were the aircraft configuration issues. By the time the Ford Motor Company showed interest, the automobile regulations had grown. That very year, a new set of laws requires vehicles to meet enhanced fuel economy, 
emissions, and safety standards, standards which the aero car simply cannot accommodate. Facing a total redesign, Ford Motors pulls out of negotiations to produce the aero car. Molt is forced to once and for all throw in the towel. But Molt's legacy as the father of the flying car lives on. There are several teams around America right now who are developing different versions of a car and an aircraft and a flying dream. But until that dream is realized, the aero car sits at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, a testament to an incredible invention that was well ahead of its time. Hershey, Pennsylvania. The nation's chocolate capital is also home to a museum which celebrates the oldest patrol force of its kind. This is the Pennsylvania State Police Museum. Here, amongst relics of heroic service, sits a mechanical implement. It's a table saw type blade. It's one that would be used on a power tool. But former state police major Bill Regan knows this is no ordinary circular saw. You're looking at an artifact that was meant to be used as a weapon to inflict harm. This tool bore witness to a terrifying event in a local jail when prisoners managed to turn the tables, causing an all-out war. What role did this saw play in one of the most harrowing prison riots in American history? It's October 25th, 1989, a quiet day for the Pennsylvania State Police. But that's about to change. All of a sudden, a cry for help comes in from a local prison in Camp Hill. The state police received a call for assistance from the institution indicating that there was a disturbance taking place there. When we got there, we saw that there were inmates running around and it was kind of a chaotic situation. But prison personnel managed to quell the brief outburst of violence by granting inmates a meeting with the warden to discuss their grievances. Peace was restored to the institution. That was the assumption. The next day, the warden sits down with the leaders of the riot. He learns they are angry about recent policy changes, especially a new rule forbidding families from bringing in home-cooked food on visitation days. But he reportedly tells them there is nothing he can do. These grievances among the prisoners were simply refused. They likely left the meeting pretty angry. Trouble is brewing, and it's about to boil over. The first night was a riot, the second night was a war. But what no one anticipated is how the inmates would fight back. It's 1989. A group of prisoners at the State Correctional Institution in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, overpower their guards. Officers bring the unruly crowd under control, and order is restored. But what the guards don't know is the inmates are just getting started. That night, around 7 p.m., guards on watch make an unthinkable discovery. Hundreds of inmates have somehow escaped their cells. Once a few of them became free, they were able to then free the rest of the general population. Before prison personnel can react, approximately 1,500 inmates are free from behind bars. The only thing that was secure was the front gate. The rest of the prison was pretty much in control of the inmates. 
they begin setting buildings ablaze, and the prison erupts into all-out mayhem. Around 9.30 p.m., inmates break into the prison's furniture shop. There was tools galore because it was used to build furniture, axes, hammers, sledgehammers, you name it. Including this circular saw. With a simple innovation, prisoners turn this utilitarian object into something far more sinister. You put a bed sheet through the hole there in the, in the saw blade, and it gives you leverage to be able to swing it in a fashion that becomes a very lethal weapon. With the prisoners now armed, the situation goes from bad to worse. By two or three in the morning, we probably had seven or 800 state policemen there. It was a major, major event. As the melee grows, desperate inmates opt for one more piece of insurance, hostages. With prison personnel facing mortal danger, officials make a final decision to use force. State policemen band together and breach the kitchen where guards are being held captive. Shots were fired in the air by the state police, and some inmates were hit. Once the inmates realized the state police would, in fact, shoot if attacked, they backed away and went back into the cell blocks. Thankfully, by 8 a.m., the last hostage is freed, and the prisoners slowly surrender. It seemed they had had enough. After nearly 15 hours of rioting, order is restored. But things can hardly return to normal. In the wake of the riots, the prison looked like a, a war zone. There was about 100 people injured. A lot of the cell blocks were not usable, so inmates had to be transferred to other prisons. The damage totals approximately $14 million. In the end, shocked locals demand answers. How were these prisoners able to escape their cells? An investigation is launched, and what it reveals is a terrifying oversight. The locking mechanisms on the cells, which were supposed to have been secured the night before, were not. Above each cell is a control panel box that electronically locks the prisoners behind bars. During the first night of the disturbance, inmates managed to remove the covers from these panels while no one was watching. On the following evening, prisoners simply reached out of their cells, released a two-inch lever, and freed themselves. It was very easy for them to get out. Even worse, Several guards claim that prison administration had been alerted of this issue, but simply ignored the problem. In the face of these allegations, the warden is suspended. And at the Pennsylvania State Police Museum, this makeshift weapon remains as a testament to a terrifying multi-day riot that could have been avoided. Nestled in southern Alaska is the port city of Valdez, while the city is most commonly associated with the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill, it was a natural disaster some 25 years earlier that radically transformed this community. The Valdez Museum holds one artifact that tells the harrowing tale of this event and its aftershocks. Andrew Goldstein is the museum's curator. 
The object itself is quite unusual. It's about maybe 18 inches long. It's extremely corroded from years of saltwater exposure. What is this hunk of metal? And what cataclysm did it witness? 2004, Valdez, Alaska. A couple on a nature walk make a curious discovery. They noticed this object sticking up out of the ground and thought it was curious, so they picked it up. It appears to be an old credit card machine, aged and rusted, with a credit card still lodged inside. The couple is baffled. What is a credit card machine doing in what appears to be the Alaskan wilderness? March 27, 1964. Dock workers unloading a cargo ship feel a deep rumble. The region sits upon several fault lines, and locals conclude the rumbling is a small earthquake. But the rumbling doesn't stop, and soon massive shockwaves are rocking the earth. Nearby sidewalks split open, and people try to flee to safety. People saw their homes and their places of work destroyed, and it must to many have seemed like uh, the end of the world. A man on the waterfront records the horrifying event with an 8mm film camera, capturing these images of a violently surging ocean. Soon, the entire waterfront collapses and falls into Prince William Sound. You had people that were just washed out to sea and never seen again. After seven horrifying minutes, the shockwaves of the quake subside. Survivors emerge to assess the damage. 32 Valdez residents, including all that were gathered on the waterfront, are dead. In the immediate aftermath, Valdez itself is devastated. Almost every building was affected by the earthquake. Scientists determined that the quake measured 9.2 on the Richter scale, the second largest earthquake ever recorded. But nearby towns did not suffer the same level of destruction as Valdez. Why did this town suffer so dearly? Engineers determined that Valdez is built upon fine sands, created by thousands of years of glacial deposits, and that the force of the earthquake softened the already porous ground. The force of the earthquake caused the sediment under the town to almost liquefy. The liquefied earth triggered a massive underwater landslide, washing the waterfront into Prince William Sound. Officials determine that it is too dangerous to rebuild the town on the porous earth. So this begun this three-year program of relocating the town to a much safer location. Officials select a site just four miles from Valdez and build a new city. The old town site is raised and eventually grows wild. Over time, debris from the landslide washes up on the shores, like this credit card machine. After its discovery in 2004, it is donated to the Valdez Museum. Curators begin researching its origins and quickly make a discovery. Well, the credit card machine was in use at Derringer's gas station, which was located on the waterfront. Still lodged in its grasp is a credit card, the name of its owner still legible. 
Ralph Malachi. Who is this man? Was he among the 32 Valdez citizens to die in this earth-shattering disaster? Or did he survive? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When a massive earthquake rocks Alaska in 1964, the small town of Valdez is leveled and 32 of its residents are killed. 50 years later, this credit card machine, wreckage from the earthquake, is discovered with the card of a Valdez resident still inside. Did its owner survive this epic disaster? Locals recognize the name on the card, a Valdez resident named Ralph Malachi. But there is a problem. When this credit card machine was brought to us, we thought it was very curious because he was known to not have been in Valdez at the time of the quake. Curators soon discovered that Malachi's wife, Mary Jo, was in possession of the card and had used it at Derringer's gas station the day of the earthquake. Yet the gas station was washed away by the landslide. What happened to Mary Jo? March 27, 1964. Mary Jo 
had stopped in at Derringer's gas station and left her card in the machine inadvertently. Upon discovering that she had forgotten the card, Mary Jo drives back into town to retrieve it, just moments before the earthquake strikes. In this footage of the earthquake, you can actually see Mary Jo's card. Soon after the first tremors are felt, a local resident stops Mary Jo and warns her of the growing disaster. So she was able to turn around and get out of town. Had she actually still been at the gas station, things could have turned out very differently. Instead, Mary Jo survives the epic earthquake and lives a long and happy life. Today, Valdez, Alaska, now on its new site, is a thriving town of industry. And this credit card machine remains on view at the Valdez Museum, reminding residents and visitors alike of the potent earthquake that moved this town. Coney Island, New York. This flashy seaside town is known for its dizzying lights, freak shows, and head-spinning rides. The Coney Island History Project is an institution that memorializes this truly unique place. Director Charles Denson displays one artifact from a long-lost chapter of local history. It's 500 pounds, it's made of bronze. It's the first thing that people heard when they came to Coney Island, and it was the last thing they heard when they left. It's a bell that survived a terrifying night when the fun and games came to a screeching halt. It was as if a nuclear explosion had just evaporated every building, every attraction. What devastating event brought down Coney Island's most extravagant amusement park? And could it have been avoided? May 26, 1911. Along the coastline of this lively island community are three miles of theme parks. And the biggest and brightest is Dreamland a sprawling, multi-million dollar fantasy world. It was every kind of amusement you could imagine. On this night before opening day, workers are frantically making last-minute repairs to the park. They were working late that night in an attraction called the Hellgate. This was a water ride. Workers plug leaking pipes with bubbling hot tar, when suddenly something terrible happens. A light bulb exploded above. A moment of pitch black darkness is soon followed by a blast of light. It showered sparks into the hot tar and the floor went up in in flames. The workers scramble to put out the blaze, but they're no match for the inferno that is spreading by the second. The fire took off and they couldn't stop it. They place an urgent call to the fire department. The first alarm went in, and the Hellgate was pretty much engulfed. Firemen quickly arrive at the scene and hook up their hoses at a nearby pump. The city had just built a new pumping station, which was only one block away, and the pressure was supposed to be 160 pounds. The firemen aim their hoses at Hellgate and brace themselves for the power of the water. But when they turn on the nozzle to release the water, something is horribly wrong. The pressure in their fire hoses was about as much as a garden hose. Water is only trickling from the nozzles, and the firemen are utterly powerless. 
As people run for their lives, the flames jump the walls of Hellgate and rapidly spread. Will firemen be able to save Coney Island's dreamland from total destruction? It's 1911. A fast-moving fire ravages Coney Island's Dreamland Amusement Park in the middle of the night. The fire department steps in, but water only drips from their hoses, and they have no idea why. Will they be able to save Dreamland? The fire took on a kind of a life of its own. There was no way it could be stopped. Workers and residents scramble to the Dreamland Ferry Terminal to escape the blaze. But before long, the ferry terminal is engulfed in flames. The pier and its iron bell that for years welcomed countless Dreamland visitors arriving by ferry collapse and sink into the water. And that was one of the last elements of the fire is when the ferry terminal burned and the bell went to the bottom of the sea. Finally, after three hours, the winds mercifully shift and the once raging fire dies down. Thankfully, no lives have been lost, but the damage to Dreamland is done. It was such an intense fire, it just vaporized everything. There was almost nothing left. In the wake of the smoldering devastation, the people of Coney Island demand answers. Why did the fire spread so quickly? And why did the new fire system fail in their time of greatest need? There was a lot of finger pointing after the fire. Investigators determined that Dreamland may have been doomed from the start. Most of its structures were covered with a type of paper mache made of cardboard and plaster. The perfect kindling for a fire. And to make matters worse, the brand new pumping system actually had a fatal flaw. The fire was so big that every property owner in Coney Island turned on a hose of some sort to wet down their structures, spraying whatever they could. By the time the fire department arrived, they were sharing water pressure with countless people, and the system became overwhelmed. There simply was not enough pressure left to fight the empowered blaze. After this terrifying disaster, Dreamland is never rebuilt and becomes a distant memory. That is, until one day in 2008. Professional diver Gene Ritter discovers something shiny at the bottom of the ocean. It's a bell, partially covered by algae and sand. I rub the side of the bell and I see the New York 1885. And I'm like, oh my God. It's the bell from the Dreamland Pier. The same bell that welcomed visitors to Coney Island's most lavish park and sank to obscurity the night it was destroyed. Today, the bell remains on display at the Coney Island History Project, a tarnished reminder of one of the greatest amusement parks of all time. Field telephones, combat radios, and military radar. These are just a few of the integral means of communication utilized in wartime and celebrated here at the U.S. Army Signal Corps Museum in Augusta, Georgia. But amidst familiar methods of message delivery sits a perplexing small green notebook. 
People expect high technology, and yet when we show them this, it's like, wow, you use that for communications? But museum director Bob Anzwani knows that simplicity is sometimes the Army's best asset. Well, this artifact was really a component of one of the most successful communication systems we had in World War I. And at no time was this more evident than a fateful day when more modern communication systems failed, with hundreds of lives on the line, forcing a death-defying message to take to the skies. What was the function of this notebook? And what life-changing message did it attempt to relay? It's October 2nd, 1918. The 77th Division of the U.S. Army is marching through the German-occupied Argonne Forest in northeast France. The idea was to drive the Germans from these defensive positions to put the Allied forces in the, the final position to make an assault into Germany. But German troops put up heavy resistance, forcing all Allied battalions to retreat. Except for one, the 1st Battalion, under the command of Major Whittlesey. As the Germans realized units were pulling back, but his wasn't, they decided that they would be able to surround him and eliminate him. Before Whittlesey knows what's happening, his troops are cut off. That's really bad for a military unit to be cut off because now you can't get resupply with ammunition. You're going to be out of food and water. And no supplies to treat the wounded. Little do they know, they're about to have a far bigger problem. Suddenly, artillery shells begin to fall. But they're not from the Germans. They're from other Americans who have no idea the battalion is here. So unfortunately, what should have been some relief for them ended up getting worse. To save his men, he needs to get word to his comrades to stop the friendly fire. Communication is very vital, especially in combat, and can be the difference between success and failure. But during World War I, technology is limited and easily sabotaged. Runners can't get through. Wire communication is cut off. They didn't have portable field radios. So they're reduced to really just one means of communication now. Homing pigeons. For more than 2,000 years, pigeons have been used to carry messages from one place to another. And the trenches of World War I are no exception. Pigeons were important because the older, uh, less technical means proved to be more durable on the battlefield. But what makes these birds truly special is their incredible ability to always find home. The main thing is to train them to know where their home loft is, which would have been at the division headquarters. So all these dispersed units could then send communications back to the division, and the division commander could get the big picture. Pigeons accompany traveling soldiers into combat and patiently await orders. This is a pigeon message book holder, the type that would have been used during World War I. Would have opened up the message book itself, which would have been held here, written the message, rolled up the message, taken one of these capsules here, unscrew the top, roll up the message, stick it into the capsule, seal it back, and then clamp it to the leg of the pigeon and release them, carrying the message. But the Germans are scouring the skies for carrier pigeons and have already shot down two of the Lost Battalion's messengers. It's getting desperate. There's one pigeon left. Cherami, French for dear friend. Any hope for survival rests on this winged creature. Major Willisley desperately and quickly writes a note on these little message pads. 
His note contains the battalion's coordinates, as well as one frantic plea. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. The message is attached to Cherami's leg, and she is released skyward. They knew it was a difference of life and death if this pigeon could fly through enemy fire. The fate of hundreds of men is at stake. But will Cherami succeed where others have failed? It's the height of World War I, and a U.S. battalion behind German lines is barraged by friendly fire. Their last hope for survival is to communicate their coordinates back to base with the use of a carrier pigeon named Cherami. But will the message make it through? As the members of the lost battalion watch Cherami take to the skies, they know her journey will be wrought with danger. They knew that the enemy was watching for any type of communication. They knew what the pigeons were. Once again, German soldiers spot the airborne messenger and take aim. And once again, disaster. The enemy opens fire and the pigeon goes down. And now the last bit of hope they thought they had, all of a sudden, that's gone. But then, in the distance, Whittlesey's men see an unbelievable sight. Cherami is still flying. It must have seemed like a miracle that all of a sudden, after being shot down, the bird rises up again. Despite her injuries, Cherami continues her journey home and completes an incredible 25 miles in just 25 minutes. They've been wounded and still be able to keep that pace is amazing. A battered and bloody Cherami makes it back to Army headquarters. She is suffering from a bullet wound and a severed leg. But against all odds, the pigeon delivers the message. The army stops the unintentional firing barrage and sends reinforcements to save the lost battalion. Of about 600 troops that go in, about 194 come out alive. So their lives are really owed to Cherami. Cherami receives the second highest award for valor given by the French government. Cherami was such a big hero that she became a household word in the 1920s and 30s. To thank Cherami, medics make her a peg leg to replace the one she lost during flight. But still, this fateful mission would be her last. Some months later, she, she did succumb to the wounds and she does die. But the story of Cherami lives on through a visit to the U.S. Army Signal Corps Museum, where a simple metal notebook tells of the heroics of wartime's winged messengers. Sacramento, California. In this bustling capital city sits an institution dedicated to celebrating the Golden State, the California Museum. Perhaps its proudest collection is devoted to those who were here first, Native Americans. And in the center of its California Indians exhibit is one item that curator Christian Kleiger believes is truly exceptional. The fur is very crisp and the stitching is, is very tight. It's made out of lynx and raccoon. It's a cape that exudes an ancient sensibility. But it's not quite what it seems. The fur cape may look like a caveman's, 
apparel, but it was worn by someone in the 20th century. To whom did this cape once belong? And how did it shed light on a perplexing mystery about a primitive man who once captivated the modern world? August 28, 1911. A man emerges, starving and disoriented, from the wilderness into a quiet California gold mining town. His skin was covered with charcoal. He had a pierced nose, pierced ears. He just sort of wandered into town. Local residents have never laid eyes on someone like this man before. He speaks a language they have never heard and appears to have nowhere to go. Local newspapers report this man's arrival. And the next day, word reaches the University of California Anthropology Department in San Francisco. Its director was Alfred Krober, one of the very first anthropologists in the United States. Krober researches the Native American tribes of California, specifically those that are thought to no longer exist. Over the last 50, 60 years, there was a big mystery that people wondered if all of the Native people from this area were gone. Krober instantly speculates. Could this man be the last surviving member of one of the lost tribes of California? He sends his star pupil, Thomas Waterman, to investigate. Waterman started giving him lists of words from tribes from all over California to see if they could recognize any of them. He came upon the word for yellow pine, which is uh, Suwini, and this mysterious man's face lit up. Suwini comes from the language of the Deer Creek Indians, a once thriving and feared tribe supposedly lost to the modern world 50 years earlier. Waterman is blown away. This man possibly could be of the group of people who were thought to have been extinct. Could this man really be the last of the entire Deer Creek tribe? And if so, how has he survived for so long alone? It's 1911. A starving man stumbles into a small California town. He's confused and seems to only speak an unrecognizable language. Could he be the last surviving member of a long-lost Native American tribe? To find a wild person in 1911 was extraordinary. The man's language leads anthropologists Krober and Waterman to believe he is a member of the Deer Creek tribe, which is thought to be extinct. But how did he survive all alone? Could there be other Deer Creek Indians still out there? They bring him to San Francisco for further study and decide to call him Ishi, a tribal word for man. Almost instantly, Ishi is a media sensation. Reporters were writing that this person is the last of the Deer Creek Indian in all of North America. The public embraces Ishii, and Krober says he has the perfect place for him. Ishii is given a job at the museum to serve as a living exhibit. But as Ishii assimilates to life at the museum, 
Krober tries to unlock the secrets about his past. She really didn't tell much. Waterman and Krober asked him many times to please show where he lived. And Ishii, time and time and time again, said no, he didn't want to go. Then, after three years of persistence, Ishii finally agrees to go back. He leads the scholars 200 miles north of San Francisco into the barren wilderness. There they find an amazingly pristine display of primitive life. But Ishii's return to his old home is also filled with sadness. Krober learns that this is the last place Ishii saw his family alive. Clearly, Ishii was very emotionally upset by having gone back to that actual location. Ishii explains that Indian hunters and settlers had reduced his tribe to this one small camp. Then, in 1908, one final raid killed off the rest of his family, leaving Ishii utterly alone. The visit convinces Krober that Ishii is, in fact, the last of his tribe. It was very much, I think, a phenomenon. The Wild West is closed. The last wild Indian was captured. Ishii returns to San Francisco with Krober and continues working at the museum. Two years later, he dies of tuberculosis. Ishii's legacy as the last of the Deer Creek Indians lives on in the history books. Then, nearly 100 years later, new research emerges spearheaded by curator Christian Kleiger. Kleiger uncovers stories told by people of Native American heritage that reveal new information about Ishii and his tribe. People recalled Ishii. They knew Ishii before this time. Though Ishii believed that all of his fellow Deer Creek were slaughtered, Kleiger discovers that some fled their camp before the final raid. Today, relatives of Ishii live on as members of other California Native American tribes. Formally, the Deer Creek tribe no longer exists. Ishii's story endures in the form of this fur cape, proudly on display at the California Museum, a testament to one man's journey from primitive solitude to modern society. From flying cars to heroic pigeons, prison riots to earthly disasters. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.